The following message features Bob Coughlin and was recorded at the fifth main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. It's entitled Faithful to Grow. Bob is the director of Sovereign Grace Music. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. The theme of the conference is called to be faithful. And in many ways, faithfulness is characterized by doing the same things over and over and over because we know they're the right things to do. So we faithfully approach God through the finished work of Christ at his invitation rather than on our own merits. Every time we come. We faithfully seek to proclaim God's word and the gospel without trying to be innovative with them or to do something better. We faithfully engage with God, mind, soul, and body. We faithfully serve others for God's glory, remembering that Jesus first served us. So things we do over and over and over. But being faithful also means growing. Taking advantage of the skills and gifts and opportunities and relationships and seasons that the Lord gives us to bring him greater glory. So we, we grow in godliness. We, we grow in knowledge. We grow in skill. We grow in influence. We grow in fruitfulness. And at times we even grow in numbers. Although, not always. Because being faithful doesn't mean that we always grow numerically. Sometimes it means our numbers diminish. But we don't want to have this picture in our minds that being faithful means starting at least one song every Sunday in the wrong key. Just because we're, we're just being faithful. I mean, we, we, just, we don't have much to offer and, you know, Jesus perfects everything. So, so it really doesn't matter. I'm just being faithful. We don't want to think that being faithfulness means we can't play more than five chords on the guitar. I'm just being faithful. I play those five chords over and over and over. And, and they said at the conference, God would bless me. Well, yes, he will. He can. But that's not what being faithfulness looks like. We don't want to look down on those who are really proficient and effective and popular and think, well, well, they're just doing what they do for their own glory. They're not being faithful like me. No, they, they might be being very faithful. And we don't want to see it as a sign of God's favor that our church isn't growing. Or worse, that it's shrinking. You know, the fact that a church is shrinking doesn't always mean that you're being faithful. Could mean some other things. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about three servants who were all entrusted with different amounts of money while their master went on a long journey. It's a third parable that Jesus relates where he's talking about his return and the importance of being ready, being prepared. In this parable, Jesus tells us what getting ready looks like. 
We're not simply sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. There's work to do. There are gifts to be invested, opportunities to take advantage of, and lessons to learn. So this is a parable about maximizing the opportunities God has given us and not wasting them. Or being faithful to grow what God has entrusted to us. And that's what we're going to be talking tonight about, being faithful to grow. So I'm going to read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a, long, going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. 
as you have spoken to us as we've been singing these songs. We ask that you would open our eyes to your perspective. We pray that you would give us grace to be faithful in the ways that you have called us to be faithful. And we ask this not for ourselves or for our glory, but for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a familiar, familiar parable. This is a familiar parable. It's fairly simple. I believe it has something to say to us about God's call on our lives to grow. We're going to look at it in three parts, which we're calling the entrusting, the stewarding, and the accounting. So first, the entrusting, verses 14 and 15. First thing we see is that the master gave a variety of talents to the servants. Now, five, two, and one. While our word talent actually has its roots in this parable, Jesus isn't talking about gifts and abilities directly. A talent referred to the weight of a precious metal, typically silver, but sometimes gold or copper. And he didn't tell the servants what to do with these talents. He, he simply entrusted his property to them. It was on loan, so to speak. He said, this is mine. I'm, I'm giving it to you for a season, but I'm coming back for it. Notice that the master viewed each servant as unique. He gave them each a different number of talents. says, to each according to his ability. In verse 15. They had different abilities, and those abilities defined the opportunities they had. So the servant with two talents wasn't expected to earn five talents more. He was expected to earn two. The servant with one talent wasn't expected to produce two more. People are different. God gifts them in different ways, and being faithful to grow doesn't mean we're all starting at the same place or that we end up with the same results. Matt mentioned earlier leaders like Matt Redman or Chris Tomlin or who have a worldwide platform to share their gifts and their songs and their writings. Some, some people are like that. Most aren't. Most of us aren't. But we've been given unique gifts and opportunities that no one else has. God gives varied gifts and opportunities, each one for His glory. You also want to notice that there is a richness in this entrusting. A talent was worth about 20 years' wages. One talent. Or what a laborer might hope to earn over half a lifetime. So the first servant received 100 years' wages. The second servant received 40 years' wages. And the last 20 years' wages. Now, however you figure it, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Most of us are tempted to think that our opportunities and our gifts aren't aren't worth very much. They're pretty small in the scheme of things. Maybe, maybe a part of God's plan somewhere, maybe, but a really, really, really tiny part. Certainly dispensable and hardly noticeable. You might think, well, 
I mean, my church only has three musicians. One of them plays the accordion. One of them plays the drums out of time. And I'm the other musician, and I really don't know much. And, like, we just don't have very much. Like, one talent is like way, way, way too much to think of what we have in terms of our church. Or it might be, you know, our church has like 37 on a good Sunday. And that's counting children and children in the womb. <laughs> and, and, you know, we got this church down the street with like 700. And they're like bursting at the seams. And, you know, who are we? And we're nothing in God's plan. Or it might be, I'm just a self-taught guitarist. I don't, I don't know music. I've, I've been playing for five years, and, and I'm supposed to be leading the church. You know, we can be tempted to think that others have, have greater gifts, greater opportunities, or, or that we just deserve more. You know, if I only had more money, more opportunities, a better background, better teachers, a bigger church, better training, oh, then what I could do for God. If I just had whatever. God has entrusted each of us with gifts and opportunities of inestimable value. Beginning with the gift of salvation and all it encompasses. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have the word of God given to us. We have the gospel. We have access to the throne of grace. What more could we ask for? We've been given immeasurable riches in Jesus Christ. And yet, on top of all these things, God gives us gifts, skills, abilities, opportunities. And what makes them valuable is not that they belong to us, but that they belong to God. That's what makes them valuable. The master entrusted his property to his servants. What we have is the master's, not ours. It's for the master's glory and benefit, not ours. We receive gifts and opportunities to serve God's purposes, not ours. They are for his sake, which means they're all valuable. And we've simply been entrusted with them. God's given to them, get them to us on loan, so to speak. So do you see what God's given you as valuable and worth investing? Because if you don't think it's valuable, you won't invest it. Do you see it as worth working with? Worth working on? Worth growing? We receive different levels of gifts and abilities and responsibilities, but all of them are valuable in their gifts of extraordinary grace because God delights in using ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary plans and purposes. He uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary plans and purposes. One commentator, one commentator said about this passage, if the Lord has shown us no ordinary generosity, he expects no ordinary service. So can you see how if, if we don't think we've been given very much, 
We won't feel very much of responsibility to make it grow. If it's not worth very much, well, well why, should we, why should we do anything with it? We tend to think if I can't be as excellent as so-and-so, well, then I can't be expected to work as hard. I can't be expected to do as much. Harold Best addresses that attitude in his excellent book, Music Through the Eyes of Faith, and he helps us think about giftedness in a biblical way, which I found very helpful. He says, we are unequally gifted. No two people are alike. Some get five talents, some get two, some get one. But the real point, the scriptural point, is that whatever we are, whoever we are, we can all be better than we once were. We can all be better than we once were. Name the activity, name the gift, name the call, and the commandment to excel in excelling stares at all of us. All of the world square in the face. The question of God to every Christian is simply this. Having achieved thus and so, what is your next move? All of us are at different places in terms of our influence, in terms of our responsibilities, in terms of our giftings, our calling. Here's the question for all of us. We've been entrusted with something, many things. What is our next move? Which takes us to verses 16 through 18, which I'm calling the stewarding. We have the entrusting. We've been entrusted with a variety of gifts of inestimable value. What are we going to do with them? Verse 16 says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. He immediately set about developing what he had been given by the master. We don't know what he did exactly. He might have invested it. He might have traded it. He might have used it to work for him. But what, what he was given grew. He knew he had a responsibility to steward what he had, he had received, and he got right to it. And the second servant did the same. He got two talents. It says, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. They both took what the master entrusted to them and stewarded it so that it grew. Now the third servant, for whatever reason, we're not told yet, went and buried the one talent he had been given in the ground. Now, now why would anyone do this? It sounds so strange. You've been given something. 20 years wages, and you go bury it in the ground. Well, it's not as odd as it sounds. Buying or hiding, burying, sorry, or hiding valuables to keep them safe was a common practice in Jesus' day. It was a way of keeping something secure. Kind of like stuffing money in a mattress. You know, have, you, y'all, have you all done that? I don't know if you've done it, but heard of it. <laughs> stuffing money in a mattress. It doesn't grow, but at least it's safe and secure. At least that's what we think. In June of 2009, a Tel Aviv woman in her 40s bought her elderly mother a new mattress as a surprise present and took the old one to the curb on Monday. The next morning, her mother woke up screaming when she realized the bedding switched, revealing to her that her daughter, revealing to her daughter that she had been stashing her life savings inside the old mattress. The money amounted to about one million U.S. dollars. The woman said she had had 
traumatic experiences with banks. I can assure you that the traumatic experience with banks didn't compare <laughs> to the trauma experience she experienced when she learned that she had lost everything she had when her daughter put the mattress out on the curb. And as Jesus says later, that's what can happen when we fail to take stewarding what God has entrusted to us seriously. We don't know how the servants made their talents grow, but one thing's clear. The master held them responsible for developing what they had been entrusted with. So this is not an exposition of this text, but I want to apply this in specific ways to this group, this specific group of people. Some of the things that we might have been entrusted with that God wants us to grow. Three things. First, your relationship with God. We have been entrusted with our relationship with God. There is nothing more valuable, nothing more worthy of investing in. And when it comes to your relationship with God, trading equals investing time. That's, that's what we do with this gift, our relationship with God. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The godly man, the righteous man, meditates on God's word day and night, and he yields fruit in season. There are no shortcuts to spiritual depth and maturity. Even though, even though we look for them, we, we hear about some, some new plan that's going to get us spiritually mature quickly. Say, oh, yes, yes. It's like those diet plans where you can eat all you want and lose 20 pounds as long as what you want has no sugar, no carbs, and no nutritional value. Yeah, you can eat all you want. It, it just doesn't happen. If we're to grow in our relationship with God, it will take time and work and intentionality. Listen to Paul's counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 through 15. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. How are we going to grow in our relationship with God? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. How will people see that we're growing in our relationship with God? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, and people will see your progress. Not too long ago, I was at a conference where a pastor recited a chapter of Hebrews from memory. Later, I learned that he had memorized the whole book of Hebrews. Now, there was another conference recently where the speaker recited the first eight chapters of Romans from memory as part of his sermon. You know, he, both those guys, they didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to memorize the whole book of Hebrews by the end of the day. 
I'm just going to read it through a few times, and then it'll be done. It took immersion. It took practicing. It took hours and hours and hours. And I think, well, I could never do that. So I never start. I'm discouraged before I even begin. The person who immerses themselves in Bible study and prayer is more likely to grow than the person who doesn't. I've never met someone who grew in their relationship with God because they didn't read their Bible and didn't pray. I've never met someone who knew more about God because they spent more time on Facebook than reading books on doctrine and theology. Never. And never will. This is what our friend Charles Spurgeon said. Give yourself unto reading. The man who reads, the man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. (laughs) You need to read. Our relationship with God is something that he has entrusted to us. And by his grace and by his spirit, we can invest in it. We can steward it. Here's another area for musicians. Your musical skills. Trading our talents looks like something called deliberate practice. Growing in our musical skills. Whatever field you're in, finances, art, sports, writing, no one generally becomes an expert until they've done it for 10,000 hours. That's... Four hours a day for seven years. That's generally when someone has, a, has become an expert in something. Practice takes intentionality, work, and time. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. I read that just the other day in my devotions. I thought, wow, that's so true. Sometimes I think just by wanting something really badly that I'm getting it. So if I want to be a better musician, just if I wake up every day thinking that, I want to be a better musician, somehow that makes me a better musician. Or for me, it would be writing songs. I think if I just tell people that I want to write songs, it's like I've actually written them. When it doesn't work that way. You don't write songs apart from investing the time in them. You don't become a better musician apart from clear, deliberate hours and hours of practice. All of us want the fruit of growth without the work. We want to we play guitar like Phil Kage. We want to write songs like Stuart Townend and Keith Getty without actually investing the work that they do. I was talking to a, a friend of mine in Nashville. He's talking about a country songwriter who has about one hit every year. Every year, he has about one hit. I thought, wow, that's amazing. He says, you know what he does? He writes and records two songs every week. That's over 100 songs a year. And out of that, he gets one hit. But if you get one hit, that'll probably pay for your year. That's fine. Keith Getty, for a period of time over one year, wrote five melodies every day. He had a little notebook, carried around, and he just, he would jot down a melody, he'd write down it. 
So you say, well, that just seems like so much labor, so much work. But yeah, you might get an in Christ alone out of it, which would be okay. <laughs> in his book, Talent is Overrated, a man named Jeff Colvin persuasively argues that what most of us attribute to talent, gifting, and hereditary genes is often the result of plain, old, boring, repetitive practice. <coughs> this is what he writes. Deliberate practice is characterized by several elements, each worth examining. It is an activity designed specifically to improve performance, often with the teacher's help. It can be repeated a lot. Feedback on results is continuously available. It's highly demanding mentally, whether the activity is purely intellectual, such as chess or business-related activities, or heavily physical, such as sports. And last thing, and it isn't much fun. That's what deliberate practice is. I was grateful for the opportunity when I was in college to get a piano performance degree. People often, people have come up to me and said, you know, I, I wish I could play piano like you do. I said, well, it, it, you know, maybe you could, I don't know. I, I just know that when I was in college, I spent four years practicing four hours a day. And sometimes I'd sit in a, piano, a practice room for 10 hours practicing the piano. Now, what you do with those 10 hours makes a huge difference because you can waste 10 hours in a practice room. But a lot of what I did, oh, can I demonstrate this? Is this piano on? Excellent. All right, so a, a lot of what I did was this. Now, I know you'll find this fascinating. excited. <laughs> and there are 12 keys to do this in. And then for variety, sometimes I do it parallel. Not contrary motion, but parallel motion. I'm just getting excited doing this. And what that does is develop finger independence and is absolutely boring. However, my fingers got independent because I did that so often. And I, you know, there are other exercises that you do. And you think, why would you do that? That's a great question. I, I don't know. <laughs> Because I found it to be one of the most helpful exercises to enable my fingers to, do, to be independent, which as a pianist is, is pretty important that your fingers be able to work independently of one another. When I first entered school, this was my goal. I wanted to be able to play whatever I wanted when I graduated. That was my goal. It was very self-centered. It was egotistical. I wasn't a Christian. I, I, just, I just wanted that. That's what drove me. And then I became a Christian, and my, my motives changed. But I, but I still realized that if I was going to become a, a good piano player, I had to spend a lot of time. Now, God knows how much time you have to spend, and I doubt that any, many of us, if any of us, have four hours a day to, to spend on practicing our instrument. 
But that doesn't mean that you might not have 10 minutes or 15 or maybe an hour a week or something, some way to steward the gift that God has given you. So while we're on the topic of practice, we're really getting away from the passage now. Uh, Practice focuses on what is wrong, not on what is right. Some of us think that by, well, like for a rehearsal, that if we just play the things we know, we'll be okay. No, play the things you don't know. Practice the things that you're playing badly. Those are the things that need the practice. Albert Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that's what we do sometimes in our practice. We just play it wrong every time, every time. Then we fix it. Then we play it wrong again, fix it, wrong again, fix it. We're just training, to play, training ourselves to play it wrong again and fix it. That's what we're doing. Practice, focus on what's wrong, not on what's right. Don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. It's one of the most helpful things that, that was ever said to me about practice. Don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you get, can't get it wrong. Uh, 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 oh, I got it. Okay, I'll move on to something else. No, that was probably just luck. And I don't even believe in luck. <laughs> but that's probably what that was. Keep doing it. Do it two times. Do it three times. Do it four times to make sure, okay, I'm, I'm practicing, practicing it until I can't get it wrong. Someone said, if you want to be a good musician, practice what you're good at. If you want to be a great musician, practice what you're bad at. That's where the practice needs to be directed. Practice isn't real life, but it can prepare us for real life. Fruitful practice means being harder on myself when no one is around than when I'm with others. I don't typically use sports analogies because I'll just say dumb things. But I have this one written down, so I'm just going to stick to the script. And it may not be as... Well, you guys know American football. It's not like your football, but Jerry Rice was one of the greatest receivers in the National Football League history. He was renowned for what he did when no one was watching. Most remarkable were his six days a week off-season workouts, which he conducted entirely on his own. So he's, he's an American football player. He's a, he's a receiver, receives the passes. Off-season, he worked six days a week on his own. Mornings were devoted to cardiovascular work, running a hilly five-mile trail. He would reportedly run 10 40-meter wind sprints up the steepest part. In the afternoons, he did equally strenuous weight training. These workouts became legendary as the most demanding in the league, and other players would sometimes join Rice just to see what it was like. Some of them got sick before the day was over. So Jerry Rice was being very hard on himself so that when it came time to deliver, it would be easier. That's, that's deliberate practice. Practice that can't be measured becomes mindless. So we want feedback for what we do. Practicing without feedback is like bowling. Do you guys have bowling here? Bowling through a curtain that hangs down to knee level. You can't see any of the pins. You're just kind of throwing the ball in that direction. You don't know if anything happens. We want to be able to know if something is happening as a result of our practice. So ask for feedback feedback from people you trust. Ask yourself questions about what you've learned. Review what you've learned. Practice, I think, is one of the 
simplest areas that we can invest, that we can steward to, to become more effective tools in God's hands. It's one of the most neglected. It's why I took that much time to just talk about it. Because some, for some of us, it seems like mist, uh, growth in, in the area of our musicianship is, is a mystery. It's not as mysterious as we think. If we give ourselves to clear, intentional, deliberate practice, we will see growth in our musicianship. And then a third area God has called us to steward is our sphere of influence, where trading that looks like taking initiative. Just because you've been serving in the same place for five years doesn't mean you're supposed to be serving in that way for the rest of your life or for the next five years or, or maybe not in the same way. So when you come to a conference like this, do you, do you sit by yourself and never talk to anyone or do you reach out to others? Are you finding out how you might be able to serve someone or learn from someone? On Sundays, do you come in and just take a seat or do you, do you look for others to serve, to invest in? Do you seek to connect with people you can learn from or do you wait to be asked? Our sphere of influence is an opportunity that God's given us to invest in. I had a dear friend named Chip Stam who went to be with the Lord a couple years ago. He wasn't a man of amazing musical gifting. He was a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, but he took great advantage of his relationships. And I came to know a number of people like Keith Getty, Harold Best, and others through his faithful investing in his sphere of influence. I'm the beneficiary of someone who said, I have an opportunity to, to influence others for the gospel. I'm going to take advantage of it. So he invested. He stewarded it. So look past over the last year. Look back over the last year. Are there any gifts or opportunities or skills that you've simply buried? No one knows about them. They aren't doing any harm, but they certainly aren't being used for the Father's glory. Faithfulness to Jesus leads to understanding the responsibility of stewarding what God has entrusted to us, which leads to the reality of the accounting. Last section, verses 19 through 30. We've looked at the entrusting, the stewarding, now the reality of the accounting. Jesus doesn't say when the master came back, but he does say it was after a long time. In other words, there was ample time for each servant to work with what he had been entrusted with. Lord willing, all of us will have many years to see the things that we've been entrusted with grow. So the master approaches the first servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he praises him. He says, well done. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing before our master, our father, our creator, our redeemer, and him looking at us and saying, well done. Don't, don't you want to hear that? You do. 
Then he says, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. If you use and invest your talents, you will be given greater opportunities. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. And one of the rewards for good work is the opportunity to serve in other ways. That's growth. That's why a number of people who are well-known, who have a broad platform, that's why they got there. Because they were faithful to serve others where they were. They were faithful to invest what they had been stewarded, entrusted with where they were. They didn't wait for bigger opportunities. They took the ones they had. And they saw them as opportunities that they could steward. We have to fight the mindset of our flesh and our culture that says the goal is to get everyone to serve us. That our ultimate aim is sitting on an island beach somewhere doing nothing. That's not the goal. As I get older, I think about this more. You know, what, what am I aiming for? What am I looking forward to? Is it, is it just resting? Well, I know I'm going to get a rest. And that rest is going to come when I'm with my Savior. And this could be eternal. And there'll be nothing like it. But right now, Jesus commands industriousness. He commands good stewardship of the resources he's given us. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be work for us to do for God's glory. And we will have so much joy doing it. Now the second servant comes along. And rather than saying, you know, he receives, uh, he, he says to the master, I've, I've earned two more. The master doesn't say, what? Only two more talents? Whoa, this guy just gave me five. What were you doing? He doesn't say that. He says the exact same thing that he said to the one who came back with five more talents. Both received the exact same commendation. Although what the first two servants gained was significant in our eyes, it was, in the master's eyes, only a little. He says, you've been faithful over a little. So apparently, the master has some pretty vast resources. I've only given you a little. God has given us much more than we're aware of, but in his eyes, it's just a little. And you know why that is? Because the reward that Jesus Christ has won for us, that God has prepared for us, is inconceivably great. inconceivably great. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, when he's talking about our sufferings, he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's beyond what we could ask or imagine vast resources. In the coming ages, God is going to show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The greatest joy of a follower of Christ is not in the fruit that comes from growth, but being able to share in the joy of our master. That's what the master says. Come, enter into the joy of your master. 
Knowing him, seeing him, enjoying him. That's what the reward is. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, the largest section of the parable is devoted to the master's words to the third servant. When the third servant saw his master, he responds in verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Now, doesn't it seem like the master would say at that point, Well, good, at least you gave me what I gave you. He doesn't. He doesn't respond that way. He says, you're wicked and lazy. (laughs) Now, why does the master treat the servant so harshly? Because the servant's attitude and actions reflected poorly on the heart of the master. He claimed the master was harsh. So he didn't do anything with what he had been given. He blamed his master's heart. He said, well, if you weren't so harsh, I would, I would have gone out and done something with it. But you're just so harsh, reaping where you didn't sow. And so I just buried it, making it sound like it's the master's fault. And the master turns it around and talks about the servant's heart. The third servant was faithful not to lose what he was given, but he had no sense that he had been entrusted with something of great value, and he had the responsibility of stewarding it, and he was going to be held accountable for it. What what excuses do we offer for not stewarding the gifts and opportunities that God has given us? What do we say? God is too hard. He's unfair. I won't get glory for it. It's it's just not even worth the effort. No one's going to respond. No one knows about me and what I'm doing. Oh, there's a long list of excuses we can use for not being faithful to grow. There's a man named Thomas Chisholm who sometimes described himself as just an old shoe. It's an unusual description. (laughs) Was born in a Kentucky log cabin in 1866. He He was converted when he was 27. He became a pastor at 36, but he had to retire one year later due to poor health. He spent the majority of the rest of his life as a life insurance agent. He died in 1960 at the age of 93. During his life, he wrote over 1,200 poems, most of which no one will ever hear. But in 1923, at the, what he described as beyond his prime, age of 57, Thomas Chisholm sent a few of his poems to a man named William Runyon at the Hope Publishing Company. One of them was based on Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Runyon was particularly moved by the lyrics and sought to set it to a melody that would reflect the response of wonder and gratefulness to God's faithfulness that were conveyed in the lyrics. 
We know that song today is great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever wilt be. Song went on to become a favorite at Moody Bible Institute. And later on, George Beverly Shea sang it at a Billy Graham crusade, number of Billy Graham crusades, and now it's known all over the world and has been used to encourage millions of Christians to trust in a faithful God. That is, that is pretty good return. Pretty impressive spiritual fruit from a life insurance agent who described himself as an old shoe. When he was 75, Chisholm wrote this in a letter. He said, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me on until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Do we have astonishing gratefulness at our covenant-keeping God and the wonderful displays of his providing care and the riches of his grace that he's poured out on us in gifts and opportunities. Let's not lose sight of the rich resources God has given to each of us for his glory. However the talents are interpreted, we, we want to have the Father say on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We can't end this message without remembering the one who's telling the parable, Jesus. There is nothing that we've invested, that we will invest, that we will steward, that we didn't receive first as a gift through Christ. There is no one of whom it will ever be said he or she was completely faithful except one. There is no one whose labors will be sufficient in themselves to merit hearing well done. Only one. And we read about the son's faithfulness in Hebrews 3. The writer says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. 
just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus Christ, the faithful one, has provided all we need to make much of what God has given us. However insufficient or inadequate or unnecessary or dispensable we think it is, in God's eyes, it's a rich investment. It could be 100 years wages. could be 40 years wages. could be 20 years wages. It's a rich investment. We need to see what God has given us through His eyes and say, Lord, I want to see this grow. And I don't want to see it grow for my glory. It's why, why Christian musicians should be among the best musicians. Because we practice, practice for such a greater cause. We don't practice for our glory. We practice for His glory. We don't seek to invest our gifts, our songs, our leadership so that we get the benefits so that we get the praise and the honor. We do it so that our master will get the praise and the honor because he is due the praise and the honor. He is the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and praise, power, wisdom, riches, and might. Jesus Christ. And through his atoning death on the cross, He has provided something else, forgiveness for all our failings, a covering of all our sins. He's provided for our weaknesses. He's given us strength for our persevering and fruitfulness for our labors. It's something to look forward to, don't you think? Rather than thinking, well, I just don't have much. You have more, we have more than we could ever imagine in Jesus Christ. And on the last day when the Father says, well done, we will hear through those words the Father's pure delight in his beloved Son who made it all possible. You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin entitled Faithful to Grow. It was given at the fifth main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemen.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.